0: Good morning. morning. Actually, uh, Pastor Mike Moultrie couldn't uh, make it. Uh, uh, I'm Pastor John. I just uh, know you guys don't recognize me, but I was in the tanning salon last night and I think the guy uh, did something wrong. But um, it's okay. Uh, Praise the Lord, God. I basically came out of um, North Shore Baptist uh, Church and Pastor Ed asked me about a year and a half ago if I would go over to Woodside and help out Pastor uh, Matthew Shores, because we believe in the plurality of elders um, as we look at scripture, uh, particularly um, Acts chapter six, and see how it's always an us, or we, went. And so it's been a blessing, it's been a journey. I'm the counselor on staff over there, and you know during the last six months to a year, it's been rough, and many people have needed counseling. And so if anybody here uh, needs counseling, just give me a call and I'd have no problem just talking you through some things. Praise God. But I've heard a lot about you guys uh, from North Shore. Um, You guys are loved. uh, Throughout uh, the five boroughs, many churches are praying for you. And I I, I thank God that I'm I'm here and I thank you for having me this morning. Um, Let's open up in a word of prayer before I start. Oh Lord, You have searched me, and you have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Lord, I pray that I would bless you with every word spoken this morning. Please work through me Lord God, I pray that your spirit will fill me to overflowing. Uh, May uh, your people see you and not me. May the Lord Jesus Christ be exalted this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise God. I I really am thankful that you guys have had me here. Okay, I'm going to dive right into it. Okay, Um, In the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew Bible or our Old Testament, there are several places that speak of the coming Messiah. So if Genesis chapter 3, the proto-evangel, did not uh, 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 wasn't revealed to everybody, and everybody couldn't understand verse 15 of of, of a Savior that would come. There are several places throughout the Old Testament that speaks of a coming Messiah. So I have named this, behold, the Lamb has come, because if you would turn to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, beginning at verse 13, we would see the Messiah make his appearance to begin his earthly ministry. Regarding Jesus's birth, I'm just going to go through a couple of places in the Old Testament. Uh, Let me know if I'm not speaking loud enough. Just lift your hands up a little bit and I'll speak a little louder. But uh, there are many places in the Old Testament that speaks of him uh, coming. Um, Isaiah chapter 7, 14 declares, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Then a couple of chapters over in chapter nine, verse six, it prophesies for to us, a child is born to us. A son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father prince of peace then there's Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 which states but you Bethlehem Ephrathah though you are small among the clans of Judah out of you will come one for me I like that he will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from of old from ancient times now we know from our reading of the Bible whether um you, you, you take a, a close look at it or you back back up, you can see that the children of Israel went through a lot of suffering. For centuries they suffered oppression, miserable conditions, poverty. They would be sold out into idolatry and God would bring chastening from other nations and then they would cry out and a merciful father, the one that we serve, would help them. He would send someone, a deliverer. The thing is, when Christ came on the scene, they didn't recognize him as their deliverer. But John, seeing him from afar, and I like to get the picture, seeing Christ coming, the promised one, the one that God told him to go out and look for as he was baptizing, when he saw him coming from afar, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world after centuries Of taking bulls and goats and lambs, which could not take away sins. Everybody there should have rejoiced. They should have got on their knees and just praised the Savior who came to really take away sins. But they didn't. Why not? Because Jesus did not come the way they thought he would come. They thought their Savior would make a a, a powerful presentation that he would come riding on a white horse with splendor, pomp, and majesty, that he would come conquering, destroying all of their enemies, specifically the Roman Empire, and setting them up high on a hill where they would be the greatest nation on earth. But it didn't happen that way. God told them, if they would have read carefully and closely, especially Isaiah 53, he told them, My servant will be a suffering servant. He will pay the price. He will pay the cost for a people. But by his stripes, they will be healed. They couldn't see. But Jesus gives us us, uh, 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 the reason they couldn't see in Matthew chapter 13, verses 13 to 15. Jesus told his disciples, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive for this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand, and turn, and I would heal them. This is why they couldn't see the scriptures that pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. This is the same reason some of our family members won't hear you when you speak to them of Jesus as the Messiah, as the one who they need to turn to. This is the reason that your brother, your sister, your parents think basically you're foolish, but they say it in a nice way and they don't want to hear what you have to say because their eyes are closed at this moment. And we remember what that was like. We, We didn't come out the womb saved. People were praying for us. People who love us, people who met us, people who knew Christ, who knew the judgment to come, who cared enough to pray for us and plant a seed. A seed that may not have sprouted for years, but it was there. And some people you met came into your life and they watered that seed. But at the right time, God gave the increase. Amen. And we thank him for that. So, as we now begin to cover Jesus' earthly ministry, let's not take it for granted that we have been given eyes to see and ears to hear, knowing, as the scriptures say, uh, that many prophets and righteous people throughout the ages have longed to see what we see and to hear what we hear and did not see it. So, my p- two points for this morning's sermon are uh, Jesus, point number one, Jesus the eternal priest. And point number two, Jesus, the eternal son of God. Leading up to this moment, John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness of Judea, crying out, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. A quick note on this. John's baptism was distinguished from all previous forms of washing rituals that were done in Israel. Because John's baptism was not just for the ceremonial unclean or for the uh, Gentile heathen who wanted to join himself to Israel. But John's baptism was for all because all need cleansing, all need washing, all are unclean. And it's a picture of what Christ would do to everybody who is allowed to come into his kingdom because you cannot go before God, and I cannot go before God being unclean. It would take someone, and John spoke about him soon, it would take someone who would stand in your place. Our works are as filthy rags before God. And we're used to doing things in order to be accepted, right? People say there are so many religions, how do I know which one is right? But in actuality, there are only two. Christianity and everything else. Christianity is the only one honest enough, correct enough to say there is nothing you can do before a holy God that will make you righteous. If you were to take today and say, today, I'm never going to sin again. You have a whole past of sins that you have to pay for. But Christ came. And I like the way Hebrews 10, 14 tells us by one sacrifice, he is perfected forever. Those who are being saved. I love that verse because it's not saying it's not only speaking about the positional righteousness we have before Christ. Right. By one sacrifice, our position before Christ, before God is sealed and it's set. But then also it speaks about progressive sanctification. That those who have been made perfect by that one sacrifice are being saved so that we don't sit back and live any old way that we want to. But we serve God as we are growing in grace. As the scripture said, we're going from one level of glory to another level of glory. And I thank God for that. So if you've turned there already, uh, Matthew chapter three, verse 13, um, I'll begin. I'll read it. And the question we want to ask ourselves is Jesus being the perfect sinless savior. Why did he have to partake in John's baptism? Right. John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. But why did why did Jesus have to take part? Hopefully I'll get to the answer before the time is up. Verse 13 of Matthew three says, then Jesus came. I need to stop right there for a minute. Then Jesus came. Right. Matthew, you know, the Gospels are are, are perfect and wonderful. uh, But Matthew, what he does is he takes the narrative view. He just tells you what happened. But I love the way John put it. I love the way John put it, because John didn't just give us the narrative view. John's Gospel, I'm speaking of, um, he says what John said. And the, the emotion that John displayed jumps off the page pages. And I said it before, but John said, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He has come. What an announcement. John is saying that he who the prophets told us about, he is here. Rejoice. That's basically what's oozing out of his pores. This is the moment all Israel has been waiting for. This is what the scriptures, uh, the, the Tanakh told us about. Rejoice. It's, it's here. But once again, they didn't see it. They didn't see it. Verse 13 goes on to say, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, where he had lived For many years in in obscurity, in all obedience to God, in subjection to his parents, exercising a conscience void of offense towards God, spending his time as an ordinary man. Yet he was extraordinary in his complete devotion to God and sinlessness. Jesus was the sinless son of God and son of man who had no sins to confess. We cannot even ascribe to him that consciousness of evil, which weighs upon the hearts of sinful men that drives them to depression and worldly sorrow because even his thoughts were pure. Once again, so why did he receive John's baptism? I have four reasons I'd like to share that I believe are the reasons. For this. The first reason is exactly what Jesus says in uh, verse 15 of our text to fulfill all righteousness. But what exactly does that mean? To save time, we'll cover that once we get to verse 15. The second reason Jesus received John's baptism was to fulfill what was written in the scriptures. John the Baptist is the one commissioned by God to fulfill Isaiah chapter 40 and verse three, which promised there will be a voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord to make straight in the desert. A highway for who? For our God. Pick that up. Isaiah recognized that the one coming is God. Unfortunately, they didn't understand the full aspects of who the Messiah would be. Matthew 1.21 tells us his name shall be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. The third reason Jesus received John's baptism was to initiate his prophetic office. In order to do this, Jesus had to be anointed and consecrated To the service of God. This is how it was in the Old Testament Aaronic uh, priesthood. In Exodus 40 verses 12 and 13, speaking of Aaron and his sons, it says, Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him to serve me as priest. But Jesus, for you scholars out there, you know he was not of the Aaronic Uh, priesthood because he didn't come from the tribe of Levi but he came under a better priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek, where there is no beginning and no end to his priesthood. So I'd like to ask you to turn with me because I don't want you to think I'm trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Just turn with me to Hebrews chapter seven. And I want to show you some things about this priesthood that came with uh, Christ fulfilling it. Not the ironic priesthood where you would have to have a priest go before uh, the Lord continuously and change because that priest would die sooner or later. Say amen when you get there. Amen. Hebrews chapter seven, beginning at verse 12. I'm going to read to verse 19. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, for you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a commandment, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This is a better priesthood, This isn't about legalization and Phariseeism and laws that made us right. It's about a personal relationship with God. That's what he did for you and me. So although Jesus' priesthood was superior to the Aaronic priesthood, he still needed to follow through with John's baptism for consecration and anointing for the ministry. And uh, for the fourth reason, I believe it was to demonstrate a symbol of purity and obedience for believers in the New Testament church to follow as an ordinance. And he set the example by doing what he commanded his disciples to do. In Matthew, chapter 28, 19, Jesus told his disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples uh, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus was obedient to the will and purpose of God in his baptism and beyond, we are to be obedient to the will and purpose of God in baptism and beyond. Then in Matthew uh, chapter three, verse 14, Matthew tells us that John would have prevented him by saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? John recognized That Jesus was someone morally superior, but I'm not sure that he recognized at this point that Jesus was God incarnate. And I'll tell you why. In John chapter one, verses 31 through 34, John confesses, John the Baptist confesses, I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. except the one who has come to take away our sin, sins. Uh, But afterwards, afterwards, he said, I'm testifying that this is God. This is this is God and the son of God. With that said, in Matthew chapter 11, which is approximately uh, two and a half years later, we have John sitting in a prison cell. And when his disciples came uh, to him, he told his disciples to go and ask him, is he the one to come or should we look for another? And from this statement, it appears that John sort of thought like the other Jews, that when the Messiah came, he would come in conquering, delivering. But here John is sitting in a filthy prison after fulfilling his part in the ministry. And according to Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, John was held in the dungeons of Machiris, which was near the Dead Sea. And we know this, what we know mentally, but then there is how we feel physically, emotionally. There's the truth right here. I will never leave you nor forsake you. But then life happens. And we start questioning what we know. Am I by myself? We start asking people, but why is this happening to me? Why is my family suffering? Why is there trepidation? In my heart, I I know he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, but I just don't feel him right now. John heard the voice of God. It doesn't get any better. But after having his life threatened, that it could be taken at any moment, and eventually it it would be, he would be be, uh, beheaded. It doesn't line up in his mind. This is the Messiah. I know it. But after the pain, the loneliness, he was thinking, is he the one? Is he the one? So Jesus, when the disciples reached him, he said, go and tell John what you yourselves have seen, what you yourselves have heard, that the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. All of these things, by the way, are prophesied in Isaiah uh, uh, for one uh, of a few places. Isaiah chapter 35, verses five, five, and six and Isaiah chapter 61, verses one and two. The proof that Jesus was the Messiah was revealed in his teachings and miracles. Jesus had thoroughly demonstrated that he was the fulfillment. That the prophets spoke of going back to our text. Matthew three, verse 14. Notice that Jesus does not deny that John needed to be baptized by him, but he declares he will now be baptized by John in a state of humility and humiliation in order to be set apart for the greater office of Messiah and Redeemer. That was his whole reason for coming to earth. In spite of his humiliation, which includes his incarnation, his suffering, his death, and his burial, he remained faithful to the end because he loves us to the end. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. Let that sink in for a moment. We read it and we keep going. That he loves us to the end. He who has began a good work in you will complete it. Until the day of Christ, no matter how you feel, no matter what it looks like, you are not saved by your own strength. You didn't come because you woke up one morning and said, "Okay, I'm going to change. No, God said I had you on my lips before I said, let there be light. I had your name written down before I said, Okay, come forth, oceans. Before I created you, I knew you. Before I created the world, way back in eternity past, you were the apple of my eye. And because I did the work from the beginning, I'm gonna keep it till the end, even though you don't feel like it. As parents, we know what it's like when our children don't act like our children, but that does not change their DNA. Our spiritual DNA is stronger than that, if there's any such thing. You cannot get away from a loving father who said, I know you're a sinner. That's why I sent my son. Understand, you're not doing anything to catch me off guard. You are not surprising God when it's two o'clock in the morning and you're viewing things you shouldn't be viewing. You are not catching him off guard. And oh, wow. What am I going to do now? He says, no, I sent my son to stand in your place because you cannot come before me. You need someone who can who, who has to be there, who covers you by his blood in righteousness. And now you can come and we can talk. We can have fellowship. We can you can enjoy my presence and and, and I will lead you and guide you and hold your right hand that you cannot get a get away from me. If you descend into hell, I am there. If you are carried by the wings of a dove to the farthest parts of the ocean, my right hand will lead you because you are my child. You are you are of me. I have made you one substance with me and that clock must be wrong. Time is leaping. Time is going forward so fast. Okay, let's move on. Right. Let's move on. Jesus is faithful and Jesus is 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 good and he loves you and he knows. Right. So we're going to go to the second point real quick. Jesus is our eternal priest. He is our eternal priest and he is. Sorry, that's the first point. He is the son He is the son of God. That's why uh, verse in verse 15, Jesus said, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he meaning John consented. As I stated previously, Jesus being baptized was a part of his father's will. So he did it. If Christ can submit to this ordinance, shouldn't we as Christians also submit? Shouldn't we, who call ourselves followers of Christ, not kick against being baptized? And you would be surprised. There are some uh, Christians who casually go about uh, getting baptized. If I do, I do. If I don't, I don't. Uh, What's the big deal? Well, Jesus thought it was a big deal. That's why one of the things he said before he ascended to his father was go forth and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy Spirit. It was that important to him to get it done and to have you baptized, to identify with him. We don't we're not persecuted like they were in the first century, but many of them, it would cost them their life. They knew that, some of them knew that when they came up from the baptismal waters, they would be led to the crucifix. They knew that they would be thrown to the lions. They knew they would be tortured. Some knew they were going to prison as soon as they came out of the, the waters of the Jordan or wherever they were baptized. But it was that important to them because that, it was that important to Christ. And numerous places in the New Testament, we see that we should be followers of Christ. We count the course. And we say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, because this world isn't worthy of us. So we shouldn't hold on to this world so tight that we will not make the sacrifice for our savior. We should go forth. I'm just going to read a couple of places that tell us that we need to follow Christ. We have to lay down our lives and, and, and honor him with what he has given. He brought us from death, spiritual death to life and we should live that life for Him. Uh, One place we see that is in Hebrews chapter uh, 12. You can read along if you like, but because that's a foul clock that has been sped up, I'm just going to go into it. Chapter 12, verses one through three. The writer declares, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, doing what? Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, we have to look to Jesus, not our circumstances. When that divide comes, do I do right, or do I compromise? We look to Jesus, did he compromise? No, so we have to go to the right. Lord God, I know this is going to hurt, but I I trust you. I'm, I'm, I'm following you, looking to you, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Ponder him. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. If there is any time for a Christian in America to be weary or faint hearted, that time is now. So what do we do? We consider him who endured. Hostility from sinners, people he created who say, I don't believe in you and I'm going to persecute your people and your ways. I'm going to call wrong, right and right wrong. But he endured hostility. From sinners. So we look to him. We look to him. Not just two hours on Sunday morning, but for the other hundred and sixty six hours when we need him during the week. We look at the fruit of the spirit, right? And, and, and although self-control is the last one listed, if you don't have self-control in an unloving situation, how can you be loving? If you don't have self-control of your emotions, of your actions, when the times call for you to Be joyful. How can you be joyful? I'm going by my feelings. It hurts right now. What you said hurt me. What's happening to me? It hurts me. I've been at this company for 20 years. They're going to lay me off. How am I going to make it? Without self-control, you do something to undermine your Christianity to make it right. And it doesn't work that way. Wow. In Philippians chapter two, verses five and eight, Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's yours. It's yours. It's not like it's foreign. It's not like you have to borrow it from somebody. That mind that Christ uh, has is yours. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even Death on a cross. The humble mind that Christ had and has should be our mindset. Who do we think we are? Why do we think more highly of ourselves than than, than we should? If it wasn't for Christ, we would have a bag of sins on our back weighing us down every day. With uh, fighting with anxiety on the one side and on the other side, depression over here because of these sins that we've been covering, walking around like it's okay, getting drunk or high every weekend to try to mask the pain. But we have Christ who said, give me that bag. I'm nailing it to the cross. You are free. You are free. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, Paul says we are afflicted in every way, ouch, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. It may feel like you're being destroyed, but it can't happen because Christ is there. We have eternal life. What did he say? My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And what did he do? I give them eternal life, not temporary life. I give them eternal life. That's what he has done for us. So what we're always carrying in our bodies, the death of Christ. Why? So that the life of Christ The life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. On the one side, they're trying to kill me here in this earth, but I'm going to walk through it in holiness. So what I'm doing is I'm manifesting the life of Christ in the same body they're trying to kill. Praise the Lord. For we who live are always being given over to death. Why? For Jesus' sake. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal bodies. Translation, if you call yourself a Christian, act like it, live like it, talk like it. Let people see Christ in you. Then when you tell them, well, why don't you come to to my church on Sunday mornings? They won't be thinking this guy. I've heard him when he got angry last year. The foul things that came out of his mouth. The things that he invited me over to watch on television. Now he wants me to go to his church. I'm not going there. I'm, I'm better than he is. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, I like the way Paul just puts everything in a nutshell when he says, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. If you are truly a follower of Christ, you have the spirit of Christ. And if you have the spirit of Christ, you are being transformed from one level of glory uh, to another level of glory glory, and to another level level of glory until you see him face to face. To to give you an example, um, a couple of years ago I asked my wife, do you think that I have grown in my patience? And before I can get to the A in patience, she said yes! Yes! And I thank God for that because he's growing me. He's growing me. I'm not the same person I used to be, but I have not become who I want to be, who God has called me to be. So it's still a growth process. I like the way John Gill uh, uh, put it when we speak about verse 16 and and Jesus being baptized and immediately coming out of the water. Right. Um, He said concerning, well, people who discuss sprinkling. That makes no sense. And here's how he put it. Um, He was an English pastor and theologian. And he said, one would be at a loss at first sight for a reason why the evangelist should relate this circumstance. He's speaking about Matthew. For after the ordinance was administered, why should he stay in the water? What should he do there? Everyone would naturally and reasonably conclude without the mention of such a circumstance that as soon as his baptism was over, he would immediately come out of, come up out of the water. However, we learn this from it, that since it is said that he came up out of the water, he must first have gone down into it, must have been in it and was baptized in it, a circumstance strongly in favor of baptism by immersion. For that Christ should go down into the river more or less deep to the ankles or up to the knees in order that John should sprinkle water on his face or pour it on his head is as ridiculous as it sounds. And it can hardly obtain any credit with persons of thought and sense. Now, after Jesus came up from being immersed, something unique takes place. Not just that the heavens were opened and not even that John heard the voice of God. But John was allowed to somehow see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. Look at the second half of verse 16 again. It says, and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're saying to yourself, well, Pastor Mike, How do we know the he isn't referring to Jesus? Well, not only does John chapter one clear it up when it says Jesus saw the spirit descend, John saw the spirit descending. But the the he cannot be the same person as the him because they're separated by the context so that the, the, the verse reads something like this. And John saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Jesus. Plus, John Gill agrees with me. So I'm in good company. Okay, all right. Verse 17 says, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What a statement. What further validation is needed that Jesus is the only begotten, unique Son of God? I praise God that He's revealed to us that Jesus is the unique Son of God. We don't have to think, Man, I wish somebody would tell me I wish I could I, I, I could just feel it in my bosom. We have the trustworthy word that tells us and shows us he is God and he is the unique son at the same time. The problem with false uh, religions, false beliefs is you may think you have the right belief. But when you meet Christ. And he tells you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. That's going to be a scary time. I was, uh, I have to end, I'm sorry. I have to end, because I know it's communion Sunday. But here's the thing, right? I was listening to a pastor, and he was talking about a recent trip he had to New York City. And it was a a long trip, and he was tired. And what made it worse is he had to go from one hotel because of complications with that hotel to another hotel. And when he gets to the new hotel, there's a long line at the front desk, and he's just so tired, and he has his bags, and there's nobody, no more cards to take the bags upstairs, and he's just tired. And he gets to the front desk, and the check-in is okay. He, he gets his stuff, you know, and he has to lug it upstairs, um, and, 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 and he takes his key card out, and it's not working. It's not working and he's just getting frustrated and he keeps seeing that red light come on and he cannot go in and he's just burning up now. He's upset. He doesn't want to leave his luggage here. So he loads it up. He, gets to, he gets to, finally gets a cart and he takes it down and there's another line and he's waiting in this line. He's just so, so tired. And he gets to the front desk and, and he says, I'm tired. Your key cards don't work. It's been a long day. Can you give me a key card that works? And the attendant says, I'm so sorry, sir. Let me let me work on your card. And he gives him this card and he looks at it and he says, This isn't our card. This is this is to another hotel. And at that moment, the guy, the the pastor, he realizes, oh, I forgot to turn in the key card to the hotel uh, that I just left. And as tired as he was and as unfortunate of an event that that was, that does not compare to the moment that you meet Christ. After a long and hard road in this world and your body lays down and your soul goes before God and it's judgment day and you thought you had the right, quote unquote, key. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. How scary is that? Wow. That Matthew 7, 21 through 24 scripture should just rattle your bones to know that, Lord, thank you. I know that you saved me because I'm not like I used to be. Here's the thing. If you're still living like you used to be, but saying you are, there's a high probability you have the wrong key. Right. When we look at Ephesians one, four and five, and it says that that he chose us before the foundation of the world. Don't stop there. It says to be holy and blameless. He didn't just choose you to choose you. Chose you for a purpose. Everybody wants to know their purpose. Right. What's my purpose in life? To be holy and blameless. Right. Why did God put me here to be holy and blameless, to love him and enjoy him forever. Right. There's a whole bunch of reasons that you don't want to hear, but you do have a purpose. And if you don't fulfill that purpose, it's not like just, you know, everything's cool. But you're going to have to suffer. But now's the day. Now's the time. To get your life, your soul in order with the one who said, believe in me, believe in me. Because you can't get to the father unless you come through me. Trust in me, not your works, not your goodness. Trust in me. And I pray everybody within the sound of my voice will trust in him. will trust in him. Please pray with me. Lord God, you are righteous. You are holy. You are my savior, my king. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise because you are the one true God. I bow down towards your holy temple in the heavens and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love, your faithfulness. You sent your son who was also faithful. Who endured shame for my sake. Thank you, Lord. You have exalted above all things your name and your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.